This week on the Cameron Journal podcast, we are going to talk about the riots and protests in Russia and the uh, prosecution of Alexei Navalny. Uh, we're going to touch on the Free Britney Spears movement, reviewing an article we published in Rouge's uh, a couple years ago. And then we're going to talk about the impeachment situation. So strap in, everybody. It's the Cameron Journal podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to February 13th. The weekly news podcast we have a good couple of topics for you um we're gonna start with some of the easier stuff and then we're gonna jump into um the impeachment stuff uh towards the end so if you don't care about the free britney thing or the navalny situation in russia um you can skip straight to the impeachment is going to be the last story so um <clears throat> I'd also like to take a couple housekeeping moments to welcome our new listeners. Um, Thanks to the interview series that I have been running, um, interviewing really great people like Quinn Kaiser Cochran and um, Jessica Moon, which is coming in March, and Mikey Weinstein and all these sorts of people. We have gotten tons of new listeners to the Cameron Journal podcast. So welcome, welcome everyone. Um, If you have not had a chance and you want to see some um, episodes that are different than these that are more produced and scripted and planned, I would invite you to scroll down in the profile of whatever app you're watching in and listen to episodes from season one. Um, I did nine episodes on different topics from the presidency to the movie network. Um, and if you've not had a chance to listen to those, um, those are different than the weekly news podcast. They're longer. Some of them are an hour. Um, And like I said, they're scripted, they have clips, they have audio, they have different, you know, types of commentary. They're not as nearly off the cuff. Uh, They're more edited, so there's no me, ums, and us and thinking of what to say next and all that sort of thing. So season two will be coming out this spring. So I have interviews booked and scheduled through late March. And my goal is to have the new episode of the podcast out by um, by April or May. So watch my social media to see exactly when season two is going to be coming out. But we have some really great stuff. I'm going to do one on uh, Mr. Robot. I'm going to do something about the opioid epidemic, starting with the opium wars in China, um, which led to British the British seizing Hong Kong. Um, and other just interest in interesting things, including a history of the interstates, um, and driving in America. So we have lots of great content coming up in season two, and that will be out this spring. Keep an eye out on Twitter and Facebook for when season two is going to drop. So that'll be super exciting. Um, as far as uh, the, this week's news goes, I want to start first with the latest updates in the Free Britney movement and the drama with Britney Spears. This is a story that I have been following for 
quite some time. Um, I was first introduced to it over Twitter um, when some really savvy internet detectives started pulling together a lot of the Instagram comments and Instagram posts that different collaborators had mentioned with Britney Spears as the years had gone by. Um, in fact, I got access to a Google Doc with um, emails that had been released, um, including emails from Britney herself, um, between her and her lawyers and other sorts of things. Um, and I was able to verify the veracity of those documents. And over at Rouge's magazine, we did basically a complete rundown of where the hashtag Free Britney movement started. And we talked about conservatorships and all this type of thing. California, Nevada, and other states are unique in the fact that they allow a, a designated person to basically take over someone's life. And because of that, um, those conservatorships, because they're usually used for people who simply cannot take care of themselves, um, are usually used for people who are physically disabled, mentally disabled, or otherwise incapacitated so that they just cannot take care of themselves. Consequently, it's pretty nearly impossible to end a conservatorship in California. One has never been ended before. Um, the situation in Nevada is a little bit different. And there's a huge controversy about conservatorships to start with, and I'm not going to get into that now, but there is other controversies with that, and perhaps that is worthy of discussion at another time. In 2007, Britney Spears was put in a conservatorship ran by her father because of the infamous 2007 breakdown, which was attributed to mental health issues and bipolar. Um, in fact, just last, or in 2019, she did a 30-day stint in a facility to readjust her meds and things for bipolar, all this sort of thing. The problem with the conservatorship and why fans are starting this protest to try to get Britney Spears out of it is that it's incredibly restrictive. Again, remember, a conservatorship is designed for someone who's not mentally able to care for themselves. Supporters of Britney Spears would argue that if she's so incapable of taking care of her own business and her own life in the course of the conservatorship, which has been more than a decade, she has produced albums, gone on tour, done press, got, gone and done cameo and comedy bits at every talk show. She's been an active working adult, done a residency in Vegas, had to rehearse, perform, work on choreography, all this sort of thing. She was teaching in a dance studio for a while. Like she's done all of these things why this is obviously not a human being who needs someone to watch over her and take care of her and her and there's a lot of people and i am of this camp i think her father is using his daughter's wealth to pay his own way because he doesn't have any other way of really supporting himself he's a failed business person and so right now the situation is there in court trying to get the conservatorship ended or changed there was an initial hearing last year where Britney Spears was trying to get her father off the conservatorship and her mother onto it, presumably so she could have more freedom. Now the latest is they're trying to end the conservatorship altogether. And so obviously, Jamie Spears is trying to stop that. This is on top of the fact that Britney actually lost access to her kids because her father was abusive towards one of her sons. And Kevin Federline promptly went to court and had the amount of custody time that she's allowed reduced to 
she was up to half time and she's now back down to like quarter time. The other interesting player at this stage of the game is her new boyfriend, Sam Asgari, who this week came out and this kind of got the whole free Britney thing going again. He came out and said that he looked forward to a normal, happy and healthy future um, with his girlfriend. And while he hasn't necessarily attacked um, the conservatorship directly, he has called Jamie Spears a dick. So I think uh, th there's kind of, th there's trouble in the kingdom, as it were. Um, and I think Sam Asghari is literally a prince trying to pry the princess of pop out of the castle into which her father has locked her. Um, and yeah, and there's, there's, there's a, you know, it, it's, this is kind of Shakespearean in its sort of, um, in its sort of, sort of scope. And uh, yeah, and so you ha that's kind of where we are right now. And so this week, um, Britney Spears was in court trying to handle the conservatorship and just get away from her father, start managing her own finances, her own security. And I think most importantly, and I don't think this has gone on for quite some time, most importantly, speak freely. I don't think much of the public dialogue that she has had over the last several years has really allowed her to speak freely and talk openly about her own thoughts, her own feelings, what has gone on, managing her own career, deciding what she is and is not going to do, being able to pick her own lawyers, her own management, all this sort of thing. In the emails that we found, um, she'd even talked about how she was looking for someone to save her because she feared for her life. Um, I dare say if the, if the full details of this ever come out, and I think we may be getting to that point, it is going to be the news, the celebrity news storm of the century. It will be the book of the century for whoever gets to write that. Um, it will be a really, a really huge, huge thing. Um, when the truth of all of this comes out, because a lot of the tweets and posts and Instagram comments and things that she has said to people around her security that her father picks and all this type of thing are quite worrying and quite concerning. And that's where the Free Britney protest started. And even, you know, other stars have chimed in, like Miley Cyrus, to say, you know, yeah, she needs to be, you know, kind of set free. And we've kind of seen this story before. Um, Mariah Carey released her memoir last year and talked about how incredibly controlling Tommy Mottola was. And so this is something that we've seen with pop stars in the past. But with Britney Spears, it's higher stakes because it's it's family. Matola was Mariah Carey's manager and then her husband briefly for six years in the 90s. Um, this is this is family for Britney. You know, this is the people that she grew up with. These are the people that got her into show business and got her to where she was and where she is. And it's something where... I think even in spite of her mental illness, she needs to have a, as much freedom as is safe. And if it's if it's even if it's not safe, she needs someone who can competently manage her and help her to be the best that she can be. I don't see how that's her father based upon his public behavior. We obviously don't know the entire story because we only know what comes out in the media. So we're only seeing one side, one aspect, one limited perspective. But it's really hard to, it's hard to imagine 
him being the right, best, and most competent person, especially when there have been financial issues with judges in the conservatorship over expenses and offices and things that he's tried to charge and basically tried to get the conservatorship to finance his whole lifestyle. Um, there have already been financial issues with that where the judge has had to, um, you know, make some adjustments to the expenses charged um, from Jamie Spears to um, the person in conservatorship, which is his daughter. So that's kind of where we are with the whole Free Britney thing. Um, however, as a corollary to that, um, and this is the, the other kind of story I wanted to touch on um, as things have gone by, um, this kind of in the process of this whole conversation about Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, they dated briefly back in like 2003, um, kind of got drug into, um, drug into this whole thing because, um, of his interactions with, uh, with Britney and, um, and with also Janet Jackson from the Super Bowl extravaganza all of 2004. And today he released an, an, an iOS, an iOS press release on Instagram um, about his, basically his treatment of, of women. Um, a lot of people feel like he threw Britney Spears under the bus after they dated. And a lot of people feel like Janet Jackson was treated horrifically unfairly by CBS and Justin Timberlake didn't really have any consequences from Janet Jackson's actual accidental breast exposure on national television. And indeed, Janet Jackson was kept off of television, oh, I'd say for 10 years. I mean, it was a long time before she was ever really allowed back on TV. And even today, she very rarely appears on television. And that incident at the Super Bowl really, I think, put a, a crinkle in her career as far as because she said even that after you know, after that for several years that just no one would take her calls and and this is Janet Jackson we're talking about I mean she was already famous at 2004 and even Michael was still alive and all this sort of thing it was it was really bad and so today he released an apology where he says I've seen the messages tags comments and concerns and I want to respond I am deeply sorry for the times in my life where my actions contributed to the problem where I spoke out of turn or did not speak up for what was right. I understand that I fell short in these moments and in many others and benefited from a system that condones misogyny and racism. I specifically want to apologize to Britney Spears and Janet Jackson both individually because I care for and respect these women and I know I failed. I also feel compelled to respond in part because everyone involved deserves better and most importantly because this is a larger conversation that I wholeheartedly want to be a part of and grow from. The industry is flawed. It sets men, especially white men, up for success. It's designed this way. As a man in a privileged position, I have to be vocal about this. Because of my ignorance, I didn't recognize it for all that it was while I, it was happening in my own life, but I do not want to ever benefit from others being pulled down again. I have not been perfect in navigating all of this throughout my career. I know this apology is a first step and doesn't absolve the past. I want to take accountability for my own missteps in all of this, as well as be a part of a world that uplifts and supports. I care deeply about the well-being of the people I love and have loved. I can do better, and I will do better. So I thought that was, an I thought that was, a good way to respond to criticism that he had, you know, benefited from, 
his career had remained unaffected by the problems that had seemed to really take down Janet and Brittany. I thought that was, it was a good, it was a good apology. And, and yeah, I mean, Justin, he, he definitely, you know, nothing in the whole post Janet Jackson controversy, no one really ever criticized Justin Timberlake's part in all of that. He was the one who tore the costume, you know, and, and, and that, I mean, it just, he just kind of slid on by, like, no one really ever held him to account. And his career didn't suffer one iota um, as a result of the Super Bowl thing, while Janet Jackson was put out in Siberia. Similarly with the relationship between him and Brittany, and they've known each other since childhood. They were in the Mickey Mouse Club together. They, you know, basically grew up together. So, you know, it was back in the day, they were the it couple um, when they got together ever so briefly. Um, yeah, it was a whole crazy thing. It was a whole crazy thing. And no one ever, you know, it, it is not until recently that we have taken the time and the energy to actively criticize white people, specifically white men, for their parts in various and sundry scandals and problems, and now that day has come. But that's a good, solid apology. I'll give him that. That's a very solid way of handling that, and I, I appreciate um, I appreciate his, his, his candor. So on that, let's move on to the Russian protests and the Navalny situation. Um, I specifically want to um, talk about this because I talked to my friend in Russia about this situation and she had some absolutely fascinating things to say. So let's dive in. I'm going to start by reading a thread that I posted on Twitter because it has most of the pertinent information right after I got off the call with my friend, and then we'll put it in context so that you kind of understand what's going on, and then I'll try to fill you in with kind of what's happening on the ground in Russia. So let's start with the tweet. Russian protests from my friend in Moscow, a thread, and then I tagged a bunch of people. I just got off Facebook chat with a Russian friend who lives in Moscow. She gave me a breakdown of what's been going on regarding protests in Russia and Navalny. The situation is particularly autocratic. Police are snatching people off of the street, even if they aren't involved in protests. There are roadblocks going to major squares and gathering places. Many metro stops are closed and the trains just pass by. Because of the mass arrests, the police are storing people in buses with no heat, for eight to 10 hours in the cold. It's Russia in February. A high temp is negative three C. It's dangerous to go out right now and people are avoiding central Moscow. The government throttled the internet. <clears throat> I spoke to my friend by a Facebook voice. Her internet can't support video. Video is not possible right now. This is to stop people from organizing. She reports that Putin feels like he's losing his grip on power because Navalny exposed his rampant corruption and it's come out that he's building a castle by the Black Sea and it's guarded by federal troops. Putin is hiding his money by using the names of oligarchs loyal to him while reporting modest wealth and little property on his financial disclosure forms. The protests right now are more focused on the corruption. Young men are playing cat and mouse games with the police. The police are also breaking up any gathering of people, even if it's not a protest. She reports that things are pretty scary right now. She narrowly avoided getting caught up in one of the, these dragnets herself. My friend is a doctor and has consented to my sharing this with you all to bring some clarity to what is going on daily in the streets of Moscow. The police are just being heavy-handed and people are being beat with rubber sticks. Apparently, these are similar tactics to what was used in Belarus. 
Security around the Navalny trial was tight to avoid any protest or demonstration. She says the protests have been peaceful. It's the cops who make it violent. And then if anyone has any questions. She also told me that the protest started in Vladivostok, which is way in the east of Russia, near Alaska. And um, due to the time difference, protesters in Moscow and St. Petersburg already knew about the police violence. And she said it is incredibly rare for any sort of protest to be this national. Most protests happen in Western Russia, um, where most of Russians live. Not The farther Eastern Russia you go, the fewer people live there. Um, and so she is surprised that it's literally like all of Russia um, is kind of in the middle of this protest movement right now. So it's interesting, it's different. Um, and, uh, and so I, I wanted to talk about this because, um, I spoke to her on February 4th, so over a week ago, and, um, just that day, Alex, um, Alexia Navalny was, um, sentenced to two and a half years in, in prison, and his, his trial was on all the major news networks, and, um, he was in the the clear box as is happens in most uh, international trials. They make you stand up that whole time and everything. And uh, um, and so, and he was you know doing heart messages to his wife and all this type of thing. And and she reported the security around the Navalny trial was pretty was pretty tight. But it it really Putin is afraid he's losing power, and it primarily has to do with. Um, his political corruption in terms of he's, as a lot of people in the West have known for a while, um, Putin has been bilking the Russian system for billions of dollars. Some people even suspect he might be the world's first trillionaire. Um, but he, he's been making billions and billions of dollars and has tons of private wealth. And Navalny basically revealed all of that and exposed how he's been hiding his money and that's what she says he's been hiding he's basically been using other oligarchs names to hide property assets money by putting it in their name not his and then retrieving it as the time approaches so navalny isn't just merely an opposition leader to vladimir putin he's also exposed this huge multi-billion dollar financial corruption and that has led to the prosecution navalny is also incredibly popular and if russian elections were more open and more fair navalny probably would do very well and would probably beat putin in a fair vote but putin is trying to hang on to power um by by arresting navalny putin's whole program since becoming president in 2002. Remember, he's been in office almost 20 years. Um, for many younger Russians, he's the only president they've ever had. And Russia's only had three presidents since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, Boris Yeltsin, Vladimir Putin, and Medvedev, which was a hand-picked Putin puppet. Um, and Putin got out of office because of term limits. Medvedev was in there for a couple of years, and then Putin reascended to the presidency and then changed the constitution so he could effectively remain in office for as long as he wanted to. Um, and, uh, and, and so he, um, and, and so this is kind of how it, how it has gone on. And so, but now Putin's finally kind of losing the grip on power. And that's where these new protests are coming from. Um, 
as I told her, I said, well, a lot of what you're talking about honestly sounds very familiar to the protests that we've been having in this country over the summer and the insurrection of the Capitol and all this type of thing. And so I just wanted to relate to you, the listener, an on-the-ground report of what's happening in Russia and why, who Navalny is, why he's important, and why he's really being prosecuted. It's not just a political thing. It really has to do with the man's done some quality journalism, and he has exposed corruption at the highest levels of Russian power, and that is the point of of his prosecution. So if you want to read the tweet, <clears throat> um, it's in February 4th. It's in my, it's in, it's on my Twitter profile. Um, and if you have more questions about the situation in Russia, the protests that are going on, or people's efforts to try to have fair democratic elections that are not manipulated by Putin, um, feel free to write in or get me on social media at Cameron Cowan. And if you have specific questions for my friend, if you want to know something, um, if you send them to me, I'll pass them along to her. So, um, and I'll try to get everybody's questions answered as best as best I can. So, um, I'm going to warn you now, this show is not, is going to be right at 45 minutes. Um, this week I started my residency for my Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing, and I have been on Zoom calls all day for two days in a row. So, um... This week's episode is probably going to be short, and next week's episode is going to be short, um, as, I, as I've just had been very busy with all these Zoom meetings and whatnot. So I want to wrap up by talking about impeachment, and I particularly want to talk about um, kind of the course of things have gone and the new evidence that we have learned since um, the trial started. So the thing that's been most kind of distressing about the trial so far is that I don't think anybody knew how bad the situation was and how bad the um, how bad the insurrection was. Um, that is something that the um, that is something that the a lot of the public does not necessarily know or understand. And one of the things that has happened um, in the impeachment trial is a ton of new details have come out. The House impeachment managers released a lot of the un heretofore unseen security footage from protesters attacking cops, storming the Capitol, um, running around the halls going like, Nancy, where are you? Because they were basically trying to kill Nancy Pelosi. They were also trying to kill Mike Pence for not, for tr for not stopping the county of the electoral votes. Um, and it is just every time new pictures and video have come out about the events of January 6th, the situation just gets worse. And that was something that the House impeachment managers focused on in their arguments in the early part of the week. If you have managed to not hear Jeremy Raskin's speech about how his children felt being under attack in the Capitol on January 6th because his family was there, it's worth going and listening to. Um, it's kind of the quote that's gone around the world, so I imagine if you have watched television at all or listened to the radio or, or other news commentary shows, um, you'll you'll find that um but it, that's definitely an important one 
to listen to because it's it's heartfelt, it's impassioned. And um, it's so tragic at the end when he says his daughter doesn't want to go back to, to the Capitol anymore because her experience on January 6th was so frightening with people banging on the doors and trying to commit violence against anyone that they found. And it is un that sort of behavior is unusual in the course of American history. So um, on Friday, February 12th, um, the I always record on Fridays for release on Saturday, so you're listening to this on Saturday or later. Um, on today, Friday, the uh, Trump's lawyers, and I use that term loosely because their opening remarks were nuts and included a poem from Walt Whitman, basically spent the day minimizing Trump's part in the in the January events of January 6th. Just before I came on the air, I was looking for kind of some last minute news stories to talk about. And um, today, it, actually just this evening, um, CNN Politics posted um, a little bit about new details about Trump McCarthy shouting match. Um, and Trump refusing to call off the rioters. So it says here, in an expletive-laced phone call with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy while the Capitol was under attack, then-President Donald Trump said the rioters cared more about the election results than McCarthy did. And they they had this phone call back and forth, and I'm not going to um, read the whole thing, but some quotes stand out. Um, quote, he's not a blameless observer. He was rooting for them, a Republican member of Congress said. Quote, on January 13th, Kevin McCarthy said on the floor of the House that the president bears responsibility and he does, unquote. Um, that, and it's just, it, in the kind of the corollary is Re Representative Anthony Gonzalez said, I think it speaks to the former president's mindset. Um, quote, he was not sorry to see his unyieldingly loyal vice president or the Congress under attack by the mob he inspired. In fact, it seems he was happy about it, or at the least enjoyed the scenes that were horrifying to most Americans across the country. And, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, that's kind of the, what his lawyers are arguing, is that it wasn't really Trump's fault, he was not controlling their actions, he didn't really do anything, um... And there was also a lot of, there's also been a lot of conversation, especially from Marco Rubio, about, well, why are we trying this impeachment when the president's out of office? And people don't understand the impeachment process, even though we've done it twice in exactly 12 months. Um, it's good to remind everyone, we were impeaching Donald Trump at this time in 2020, right before the pandemic. Um, and then... Somehow, people are not clear on the process. Um, there is plenty of precedent and plenty of public officials who have been tried in the Senate on an impeachment charge after they have left office. The House passed the article of impeachment while Donald Trump was still president. Much of the commentary has been not allowing what's kind of being called jokingly as the quote-unquote January exception, where... Um, 
where it's like, well, if it happens in the January when you're leaving office, we won't impeach you and it doesn't count and nothing really matters because you're leaving office anyway. No one wants to set that precedent for obvious reasons. Like, if you're the president, you have to be accountable for your actions from the moment you say, I do, to the moment you're getting on the helicopter or the airplane to go home. And, um, yeah, so that is... So that that's kind of where the discussion around impeachment has focused thus thus far, and the I've not had a chance to watch a ton of it this week, but I I spent some time last night watching some video and listening to some commentary, and I think the the thing that is so breathtaking is the mental gymnastics that Republicans are going through to excuse. The, action, the truly violent and terrible actions of President Trump. I was outraged at the time because I felt at the time, and I think quite rightly, we almost lost democracy on January 6th, and it's only through Trump's ineptitude that we did not end up with a dictator that day. Everyone else has slowly risen to my level of fright and urgency on the matter. Um, if you want to go back and listen to me freak out about it um you can go back it's only five episodes five six episodes you can go back to the podcast episode from that week it was the first weekly podcast i'd done in a year and that was the first one and i just sat down and i just ranted i didn't even have stories i didn't have anything i just sat down and i just talked and got everything i was feeling off my chest and um and, and, and now I think people are finally getting to that level of urgency about it. I think what's really shameful is that Republicans, even though he's out of office and he can't really threaten them anymore, are still bending over backwards to defend this man because he's too popular in the Republican Party. And these people, for better or for worse, need Trump people to vote for them. And so there's kind of, there's not a real will especially among Senate Republicans, to really stand up against Trumpism and say, no, this is not us, this is not our party, we are not doing this. Bill of the Fifth Column, in the midst of all this impeachment, um, had reported that he had been told and had heard some rumors that there are some establishment Republicans who want to form a third party to get away from Trumpism, and I think that's very interesting. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that um, if that manifests itself, um, I'm not quite sure where you know where the party is gonna like what what political space they're going to occupy. Um, if they're a center right party, they're going to have terrible competition with the Democrats. Um, but uh, you know, but as the Democrats move left, maybe there'll be a room in the center for a truly centrist party that pulls from not crazy Republicans and more conservative Democrats. That's a potentiality as as well. And you could end up with one large center party and two smaller extreme parties, which will make electoral politics in this country very different, you know, 
for a long time. And there, there's a history of that in this country, particularly in the early 20th century and also in the years leading up to the Civil War as we went through a political realignment with the death of the Whig Party, the beginning of the, of the Republican Party, and Democrats being on the side of the slaveholders and the racists in the South. Um, there's historical precedent for that. And it made for some very interesting elections for 1852, 1856, and 1860. Um, and even after the Civil War, even the election 1864 with Abraham Lincoln and 1868, very made for very interesting, interesting times. But... Um, I'm going to kind of close to say I don't think conviction in the Senate is going to happen. There are only four or five Republican votes that are going to probably cross over, including Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and Mitt Romney. You need 17 Republicans to get 67 for a conviction. I doubt you're going to find 12 Republicans, especially because when they voted to decide the constitutionality of the trial to start with, you did not have a, a rush of Republicans voting for that. So I think conviction and disqualification from office is quite unlikely, um, but this is an important exercise to repudiate Trumpism, and I think there's going to be some major political realignments happening going forward. We might begin to see them as early as 2022, but they will certainly be in place by 2024. Um, I, I would encourage you to do go watch the House manager's closing um, opening statements. If you want to see more of the security footage, that's definitely accessible. Um, it's in clips on YouTube. I would definitely encourage you to go watch those because it is, tr it is as bad as a lot of us thought it would be and could be and is truly horrifying and truly horrific. And uh, yeah, and if you have thoughts or questions about the process or you want me to address something specific about this impeachment, please feel free to get at me on social media at Cameron Cowan. And because I am exhausted from being on Zoom meetings all day and have hardcore Zoom fatigue um, and also just kind of want to relax and shake off the day, I'm going to end it here. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Please send in questions. If there's a news story that you want me to cover, um, feel free to send it in. You can tweet me um, or you can email it in to email at CameronCowan.net. All right, guys. Thanks so much. I'll see you next week. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.